0: Manasseh, 2 Kings chapter 21, 2 Kings chapter 21. You should have all the information there on your sheet, on your notes there. Well, I mean, you don't have all the information, but you have all the information I gave you there on uh, your notes. And so Manasseh is going to be king from 696 to... 642 so it's 55 years it's a long time it's the longest serving king in either of the uh, kingdoms either Israel or Judah and so how he is characterized will have a uh, immense impact upon the nation of Judah so he's going to of course Israel doesn't exist right now in history I mean, at this point in history, they no longer exist. Um, <clears throat> so Manasseh is going to be number 14 and the list of rulers for Judah. So let's look at verse 1. Here we have the basic information about him. It says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was uh, Hephzibah. And uh, I'm getting a little Feedback there on a the little ringing. This, I'm, I'm it. I can hear you it oh, I can't tell you. Don't know anything about that. Um, <clears throat> so Manasseh is, of course, named for one of the tribes of Israel, right? The tribe of Manasseh. Yeah, and uh, that's one of the dual tribes, right? The dual tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, So those were the sons of Joseph, and his name means to cause to forget, to cause to forget. Now, in this verse, his father's name is not given, but if you just look up in the the verse, uh, last verse of chapter twenty, you see his father's there was Hezekiah, so Hezekiah was a good king, reigned uh, twenty nine years I think, forgot my memory right, and uh, so he reigned for a pretty long time. But Hezek- uh, or, uh, Manasseh, or Manasseh's son's going to reign even longer. It says here that he also became king when he was twelve. Now, when we see something that like that, we need to remember. He didn't actually run the country when he was 12. I mean, we know what a disaster that would be for a 12-year-old to run the country. Um, and and so uh, he would have had help uh, running the country from the, the royal court and the other royal officials and things like that. So he becomes king when he's 12. He'll he'll die when he's 67. So even though he reigns 55 years, he still doesn't really die an old, old man. Um, And then we see his mother there, Hephzibah, and uh, her name means my delight is in her. My delight is in her. So maybe she was the favorite wife of Hezekiah. Now, in verses 2 through 9, we see the spiritual condition, the spiritual condition of Manasseh. In verse 2, it just gets a summary statement there. So look at that. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So this is a general statement of his spiritual character. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what kind of evil are we talking about? Remember, that we usually get a comment like, like Jeroboam or something like that. It doesn't say that. It says, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So he is going to be evil like the nations that God had removed from the land before Israel took possession of it. So think back to the book of Joshua and those battles there. Those people are the people we're talking about here. Now in verses 3 through 8, we have a delineation of all his wicked acts. Well, at least the big ones. Anyway, so... um, Verse 3, we see there's 3 in verse 3. Number 1, we see that he, uh, the high places he rebuilt. Okay, He rebuilt the high places. We see that at the beginning of verse 3. In the middle of verse 3, we see that he erected altars for Baal... So he set the, remember his father tore all this stuff down, got rid of all this stuff. He put it all back. He put it all back. He made Ashtoreth. And so this is going to be like a totem pole type of thing. Um, And so we have a good idea about what all this means. It says at the end of verse 3, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. So this tells us something about Manasseh. Uh, when, he's, when you look at his wickedness, he compares to Ahab. So that's a pretty bad thing because Ahab was a, probably the most wicked of the kings of Israel. And Ahab's the one who really pushed the nation to worshiping Baal and uh, that type of thing. And, and notice what it says here at the, the description of Ahab. It, it says, and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Now, who's that talking about? The hosts of heaven. Do what? Right. It, but they would all be, are they supposed to worship the hosts of heaven? No, so they would all be false gods in a sense. So they're worshiping whatever, you know, falsely these, these other things. So now we're on to the fourth thing that he uh, did. And this is in verses 4 and 5. And here we see that he built altars in the temple complex. It says here, he built altars in the house of the Lord... Of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. So this is talking about the temple. So he built altars in the temple. Verse five, for he built altars for all the hosts of heaven, these false gods in the two courts of the house of God. So he's building all these altars. And of course, what are you doing on an altar? Sacrifices. You're offering some type of sacrifices. He's putting it. In the temple, he's putting them around the temple in the different, the different courtyards, and I think the um, writer here, in verse four, he records an important statement where it says, "In Jerusalem, I will put my name." So God told David and Solomon about the temple. In Jerusalem, I'll put my name. My name is going to be in Jerusalem, symbolized by the temple and the worship of God. And what Manasseh is doing is he is removing all of that. So in effect, he's trying to remove the name of the Lord from Jerusalem. So he's trying to totally eliminate God from Jerusalem. Uh, we get down to the first part of verse 6 and we see some other things that he's done that describes his wickedness. It says he made his son pass through the fire. So he offered his son as a human sacrifice. Son passed through the fire. That's, that's just a, a way to say he offered his son as a sacrifice to be burned up with fire. Um, We see next in verse six that he was involved in the occult. It says that he practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritualists. So now when we think about those things, what, what are they related to? people or persons are they related to witchcraft divination mediums and spiritualists satan so i think that this is talking about he's trying to extinguish the name of the lord from israel setting up these false gods he's he's worshiping gods who who they believe required human sacrifice. And I think he's got part of what they're doing in their worship is connected to Satan. I don't you know, I don't I'm not certain enough to say that he's worshiping Satan or worshiping demons here at this point. But it seems that he is engaging with them in, in these practices of worship. And in verses seven through eight, we get the seventh and final description of his wickedness. And here is just telling us that he desecrates the temple. He totally desecrates the temple. It says, Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So again, he's emphasizing that this is not just the temple. But this is the dwelling place of the Lord. And this is where Manasseh is setting up false gods. Verse 8. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers. If only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Now that's important. Okay, that, that's important. In the middle of verse 8 to the end of verse 8 is important. The key word there is if. If. So God says, this is where I'm putting my name forever. And this is where the children of Israel will be settled. If. If. They observed to do all that I commanded them, including what the... Now we're getting a lot of feedback. Um, All that I commanded them, including what Moses commanded them. Now, verse 9 gives us the conclusion to this matter of the wickedness of Manasseh. It says, But they did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So, notice at the beginning of verse 9. Now, we're talking about Manasseh here. Okay, all these things that he did. If you look back between verses 3 and 8, you see he, 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 he repeated over and over again. Now, look at verse 9, and it says, But who? They. They, not he, but they. Now, who's the they? Jews, yeah, the, the, we'll just call them Judeans to distinguish them from the northern kingdom. But they did not listen. So apparently all these things that are listed here that are connected to Manasseh's wickedness, the rest of the nation just went along. They did the same thing. They did the same thing. They did not listen. And then we're told a little bit about how did this come to pass? It says that Manasseh seduced them, so which it just means that he's the one who caused them to err. You know, not that that he's to blame for their sin, but he's the one who made them turn from the Lord. He seduced them to do evil. Now notice what it says more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So remember, when the children of Israel are coming through the wilderness and they're getting ready to go into the promised land, one of the reasons that God is so harsh with the then inhabitants of the promised land is because they were super wicked people and had defiled the land with their sin. And now we see it's saying here that the children or the people of Judah were are even more wicked than those people. So think about Jericho. Think about I. More wicked than those people. So it's pretty it's pretty incredible. So this is the spiritual, this is setting up the spiritual condition of Manasseh. We know he is a wicked, wicked king. Now, in verses 10 through 15, we're going to see the Lord's affliction, the Lord's affliction. So this is going to be how the Lord responds to this wickedness. In verses 10 through 11, we see the reason for the Lord bringing affliction on Judah. It says, Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah to sin with his idols, So this is telling us the reason. The reason is because he's just been so wicked. He's done these abominations... And I would take the abominations there to be basically a a, a shorthand for all these false, the worship of all these false gods, abominations, even more than the Amorites. And the Amorites, that's just that's just telling us everybody who was in the land before the Jews got there. Whether you call them Canaanites, Pezzerites, Jebusites, Ammonites. So what's that? Termites. So, that, that term here, Amorites, oftentimes what happens in the Bible is when there's a collective group of people and you have a bunch of different names, the Bible would just name one group that stands for all of them. So, oftentimes when referring to the people who were in the land, it'll just say the Canaanites. But we know there was more than just one uh, Canaanite. So, Uh, Or or there weren't just Canaanites in the land. In verses 12 through 15, we see the Lord's actions against Judah. The Lord's actions against Judah. Look at verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. So here's the calamity. The the Lord says, I'm going to bring calamity on Jerusalem and Judah. Okay, the word calamity here is the word ra'ah this is the general term for something bad something bad it it can be used of what we would say ethical or moral wickedness but it's often very often used of just bad things natural disasters and that type of thing so uh, the lord's going to bring calamity so it's it's kind of a, just a general term referring to something really bad is going to happen uh, here. But notice, notice whatever this calamity is, it's going to do something. It's going to do something. Whoever hears it, what's going to happen to them? Their ears are going to tingle. Now, I don't think that means that their ears are going to actually tingle. I think that's an expression that's saying they're going to say, wow, this is so bad. I've never heard anything like this before. So this is the calamity that's being talked about. And in verse 13, we get two pictures. We get two word pictures of the destruction. It says, I will stretch over Jerusalem, the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of, of Ahab, So let me put that in a little bit different terms. I will stretch over Jerusalem the plumb line. That's what it's talking about. You know, the, the line and the plumb bob at the end. So the plumb line in relation to the destruction that I did to Samaria, I'm going to do that to Jerusalem. So remember, Samaria is what? The capital of Israel. Jerusalem is what? The capital of Judah. So you get that connection there. So uh, this this is a picture that the measure with which God gave judgment to Samaria is the same measurement by which he's gonna give judgment to Jerusalem. And by the way, what happened to Samaria? Totally, I mean, the, the nation was totally destroyed. You know, it, the nation ceased to exist. So that's what we see happening here. Now, the second picture we get, a—I mean, this is even a more uh, clear picture, I would say, to us. At least we, under, we probably understand it a little bit better. It said, I will wipe Jerusalem, as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So it's like, okay, here's a dish. And it's, whatever you had in it, there's still a little bit there. Takes his rag, wipes it, gone. Then, so nothing else gets in it, he turns it upside down. So you, nothing can even get back inside the dish. Wipes it out, turns it over. Again, it's the, the, it's the image of total destruction wiped out and removed. So that's the picture, that's the word pictures of this calamity that the Lord is going to bring. In verse 14, we see the means of the calamity. So we've just been told that the Lord's going to bring calamity and that the extent of this calamity, is he's going to wipe the place out. Um, Jerusalem is going to be reduced. And verse 14 tells us the means by which God's going to do that. It says in verse 14, I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance. That's Judah. They're the remnant in the land. And deliver them into the hand of their enemies. There you go. That's how God's going to do it. God is going to use one of their enemies to bring this calamity on them. And they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies. That's what's going to happen. So. So from this statement, we know in the future somewhere, uh, Judah is going to be conquered militarily. There's going to be some type of military action against them. In verse 15, again, it's going to give us the reason for the calamity. It says, because they have done evil in my sight, talking about the people of Judah, have done evil in my sight. And have, provoked, um, and have been provoking me, notice what it says, have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. So he doesn't go back and say, since Manasseh started to reign, they've been provoking me. I mean, that'd still be a long time, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, since the divided kingdom, they've been provoking me. Since Solomon, they've been provoking me. He doesn't say that. It goes all the way back to when they just began to be a nation, when they come out of the land of Egypt. At that very point, I mean, you just have to read Exodus and Numbers, and you see what kind of people we're dealing with here. Not that they're any different than us, but, th- you know, They resisted God almost every step of the way, and they were provoking him. And the picture that we get here is that God has been putting off judgment. Now, why would God put off the judgment of Judah or anybody for that matter? Mercy, because he wants them to do what? Turn back to him, repent and turn back to him. That's what he wants to do. Uh, But now he said, enough's enough. Enough's enough. All this time and you haven't changed. So he's going to act. So um, this is because of their sinfulness. Remember, Israel's already out of the picture. So this is all under Manasseh. And then in verses 16 through 18, we see Manasseh's uh, death. And in verse 16, we see basically the summary statement of Manasseh's life. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is, this is his, you know, inscription on his gravestone. He was a brutal and bloody king, someone you did not want to disagree with. Um, you would not take your placards out into the street and protest against. Um, you know, you wouldn't do that or you would end up dead. And notice finally in verse 18, verse 17, we just seen that same statement about his, he's recorded. Verse 18, it says, And Manasseh slept with his fathers, and notice, there's a difference of statement here and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah and Ammon his son became king in his place. Now, usually when the king of Judah died, they went, and they were buried in the Royal cemetery with the other Kings, not Manasseh. He says, I'm going to make a new cemetery plot, going to be right here, and I where I'm going to be buried. I'm not going to be buried with the other kings. So, I mean, this is telling you something about this guy. Now, of course, one of the questions that we have to ask when we look at the life of Manasseh is how did he turn out so bad when Hezekiah, his father, was so good. I mean, Hezekiah is one of the best kings of Judah. And Manasseh, his son, is one of the worst kings in all of Israel, whether we're talking about the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. He's one of the worst So, I mean, you can't help but face that question. Here's his father is good and he's bad. I mean, the only thing we can do now is speculate because the Bible doesn't tell us. I mean, the Bible does not answer that question, even though it's a question that comes up. We don't know. It doesn't say. Well, (laughs) they might have been. They might have been. It's it's hard to tell because the people that would have helped him would have been the employees of his father. So I you know, I think one well, one of the things I think might have contributed to this is that when when you look in the old testament and you see these men of great responsibility, um great men with great responsibility the one part in their life that always suffers is their family. I mean, it's, it's almost a, a truism to say that. It's like, a, it's like the thing that suffers because of all this responsibility. I mean, I don't think that needs to be true, but it just happens that that's the way uh, that these men are. And we see this all through the lives of all the kings and then and to the patriarchs of Israel and all. We see it over and over again. Um, we also see that, that part of this uh, issue that might relate to the distance between a father and son, especially in the kings, is their marriages. All these kings multiplied wives. As soon as you start multiplying wives, you start multiplying kids. (laughs) And when that happens, so you got all these kids. How are you going to deal with all these kids? And it it creates a distance between the father and their children. And so I, I can't help but think that that probably had something... To do with it. And I know people will say, well, the reason they had all these wives is because in that day, this is how you carried on, you know, diplomatic things and, and international policy and treaties and things like that. They, they would give away their children and marriages and sometimes a king would marry a princess or something like that to secure um, a treaty. Well, I mean, we know that Solomon did that. A lot of his treaties were secured by him marrying a princess or something like that. But the problem with that is that that's what the other nations did. That was typical of all the pagan nations. Israel was supposed to be different. They They were supposed to be totally different than all these nations. They weren't supposed to do, well, this is how the rest of the world handles political agreements. That doesn't matter. They were to be uh, different. And uh, so we, you know, if this is a question. Why is Manasseh so bad considering his father? So we don't know the answer for sure. But there's, I mean, I think as we look at Manasseh, we look at Hezekiah, we look at the kings and people, uh, the leaders of Israel in general, we can come up with some type of idea. But the other thing I want you to notice here before we move away from Manasseh is that we have to consider how the longevity of his reign contributed to the great wickedness of Judah. He ruled 55 years. That's five decades, with a plus at the end of that, of promoting his wickedness among the nation. Five decades. I mean we're glad to have elections for every four years so we can (laughs) at least have an opportunity to vote somebody out of office. They're stuck with this guy for five decades. So he had an opportunity, you know, he's just just pushing his wickedness uh, throughout all that time. And, um, Sometimes when when we see this wickedness and we consider this wickedness, uh, uh, sometimes we wonder, why is God so hard, especially in the Old Testament, on certain sins? I mean, how come God did not punish Manasseh earlier? And why is he so hard on certain kinds of sins? I mean, here's... Manasseh, he essentially is not doing anything different than all, almost all the other kings before him were acting like. I mean, he might have been a little bit worse, but it's not like they were perfect. I mean, there's plenty of bad kings in Judah. Why does God wait till now? And why is his punishment so hard? I mean, we know what the punishment is going to be because he, we just read it. Well... I think God commands some harsh punishments of certain sins because it prevents those sins from spreading and, and having a compounding effect. And that's what you have with Manasseh. You have a compounding effect of sin with the length of his reign. So if you go back, and so you can, you can do this tonight when you get home, go back and read Deuteronomy. <laughs> If you read read Deuteronomy, and you you read all these sins that are punished by death, okay, it says, if they do this, kill them, and in all, all sorts of ways, kill them. They're supposed to die for committing these sins. One of the phrases that will be repeated there will be, and remove the sin or the evil from among you. So why is this sin punished so harshly even by death? Because what God wants to do is to remove that sin from among the people. Clear message, this is not something that should be tolerated. Well, in Manasseh's life, sin was not only tolerated, it was uh, propagated and uh, added to. And when you see him reigning for 55 years, the sin of Manasseh just went through the entire nation of Judah like tentacles. It was invasive and contagious. And so you end up with a really, really wicked nation. So this brings us to Ammon, the next king, the next king, the son of Manasseh. The son of Manasseh. You know, I was thinking a little bit about this when you think about sin and the sin of Manasseh. Thinking about this a little bit today, so sin is like COVID. Okay, sin's like COVID. You remember when COVID first happened? Everybody is wanting to stop it and eradicate it. Okay, it's just, oh, this is so terrible, stop it, eradicate it. Now everybody's saying, it's here, we can't do anything about it, really, we just have to live with it. Is that what they're not saying? So sin is very similar to that. If it is not dealt with, if it is not handled immediately, it goes from being a terrible, terrible thing to, well... It's bad, but what can we do about it? We're just going to have to live with it. We're just going to have to live with it, and we'll tolerate it. That's what happens. So now we're going to go to Ammon. Ammon. So this is in verse 19, so chapter 21, 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 19. And uh, so you have the information there in your handout already. So he's not going to reign very long—just two years. Um, but if you if you think about Ammon and his father Manasseh, so that, that's fifty-seven years. And, and so these are you know these are a the chip off the old block. Dad and son. So. Verse 19, we have a general description or a basic description of Ammon. It says in verse 19, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Mishulameth. I'm just going to, I'm not going to repeat that one. The daughter of Haruz of Jobah, Jotbah. Um, So here's the basic information that we have about him. He has an interesting name, Ammon. Um, It could mean several different things. I'll, I'll let you pick which one you like best. It could mean faithful. It could mean craftsman. Or it could just be a proper name, loaned from the egyptians where it would be the name of an egyptian god now you think about who named this dude manasseh manasseh is just a wicked guy so do you think manasseh's thinking well you know here's here's my son i want to name him faithful i mean everybody would have been thinking about, oh, so this is this is a son of the king of Judah. He must mean faithful to the Lord, <laughs> which he's not. Uh, um, or craftsman that doesn't really fit. It's not really, uh, you know, it's like, well, I was going to say that Joe isn't really a name you think of a king. Some of us don't even like that for a president. But uh, <laughs> Uh, that just came out. Uh, that wasn't that wasn't planned. Um, but you know, you think of a, a more of a royal name. But do you think Manasseh might name? So Manasseh, the guy who worshipped all these false gods, the hosts of heaven, all the hosts of heaven. He's that's who he's worshiping. Do you think he might name his son after an Egyptian god? I kind of think he did. That's the one I'm picking. Okay. So I've already told you his father's Manasseh. He's 22 years old when he becomes king. So he's old enough to rule on his own. Okay. He's old enough to rule on his own. He, he actually is born. He's born when Manasseh is about 45 years old. So he's 22 when he becomes king. Um, he's going to reign two years. He's going to reign two years. That's it. And, and I'm not sure if that is... Two full years and part of a third, or a full year and part of a second, because you know they sometimes they counted reigns differently, and sometimes when they say two years, uh, it, it only means eighteen months. Sometimes it's actually more than twenty-four months, but less than three years. So I'm not sure exactly, but it's not a long time. I mean, when you consider his father j- just reigned you know, half a century. Uh, two years is, is a drop in the bucket. Now, let's look at a spiritual condition here. Verses 20 through 22. Verses 20 through 22. And let me find it here. Here it is. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. So he just followed in the ways of his father. He's just, he's status quo. He's, he's holding on to the status quo here. And um, it it says in verse 21, for he walked in the way that his father had walked and served the idols that his father had served and worshiped them. Now, I want you to notice verse 22 specifically because I think this is interesting to think about. So he forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Now, I want you to think about the word forsook. When you forsake something, what's the idea there? Abandon. So um, so we got our Navy guys here. Army guys don't know anything about this, but Navy guys do and Marines. Um, if you abandon ship, what are you doing? Leaving the ship. Okay, where did you start out at? On the ship. Now, I think that's interesting that this particular word that means abandoned or to leave, um, to be free from, is used here. Because it, it at least suggests the idea that Ammon, even though his dad was a really wicked guy, Ammon had a choice. He could go with the Lord or he could turn from the Lord. And we see here he forsook the Lord. He he turned from the Lord. So this is his his spiritual uh, condition. And, And he doesn't last long because in verses 23 through 26, we see his assassination. He's assassinated. So, verse 23, we see that the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. So, there is a palace revolt. There's a palace revolt there. And when it says his servants, this is, don't think of like butler and maid. Think of like vice president, chief of staff, the cabinet. Okay, these are the important people in his his, uh, kingdom. Uh, The servants of Ammon conspired against them and killed the king in his own house. Verse 24, we see that the coup uh, didn't last very long. It says, then the people of the land killed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. So the coup failed. That's what these guys were doing. They conspired to assassinate the king. This was a, a coup The coup failed, the rebels are killed, and they, the people that killed these rebels, make Josiah king. Now, look at verse 26. Real quick, where is Ammon buried? With his father. In the family cemetery plot. Not with the other kings of Judah. Not with the other kings of Judah. So, now we come to Josiah. Josiah. There's a lot lot to be said about Josiah and a short time in which to say it. So you got the information. You got the general information on Josiah there. Don't need to point that out. So let's consider the basic description of Josiah in chapter 22, verse 1. Chapter 22, verse 1. Of course, his name is Josiah, which means either the Lord gives or let the Lord give. One of those Either the Lord gives, or let the Lord gives. Of course, we know his father is Ammon. Uh, Josiah becomes king when he is eight years old. So that's pretty young to be a king. So much like Hezekiah, uh, Manasseh, he would have, have some somebody else would have been ruling. He would have had a substitute uh, in his. He would have still sat on the throne, and everybody would have treated him like he is the man. But when it actually came to making decisions, he's not the guy who's who's making the decisions. He reigns 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name is Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. So this is is just the general information that we know about Josiah. Now, look at his spiritual condition. We see this in verse 2 says, he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. So he did right in the sight of the Lord. And there's always this comparison that's given compared to who, like the other kings or his fathers. But David's the gold standard. Okay, Remember when we looked at Hezekiah, David's the gold standard. So he did right in the sight of the Lord like David did, like David. So this is his, you know, whatever, grandfather, David. And we get this other uh, qualification at the end of verse 2. Nor did he turn to the right or to uh, the left. So this is very similar to the description of Hezekiah, his, grandf- his great-grandfather, Okay. Remember when it was talking about the godliness of Hezekiah, it described him as the, there was none as, I'm paraphrasing, there was none as godly before him or after him. Okay. So I would include that here, that Josiah is not as godly as his great grandfather, but he still was uh, faithful and walked with the Lord just like David, and he stayed on track. He stayed on track he did not get distracted remember one of the things that happened to many of the kings of Judah happened to Solomon is they start off good and then they get distracted in fact you could even say that that's what happened to Hezekiah right started out good and he got distracted he got distracted and uh, so that's that's not what happens to Josiah so he is a he is a a good spiritual king. Now let's real quick let's turn to 2nd Chronicles chapter 34. 2nd Chronicles chapter 34 we get a little bit more information about his spiritual condition here. And we'll look at this will be a repeated theme in these verses. But chapter 34 verses 2 through 7 very similar to what we have here in 2nd Kings. But it says in verse 2, he did right in sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Verse 3, for in the 18th year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the Lord of his father. See that? He began to seek the Lord or uh, the God of his father while he's still a youth. In the eighth year of his reign. How old is he? 16 years old. 16 years old. He is in everybody's eyes a man at this point. And here is the point where he makes the decision to seek the Lord. I'm going to seek uh, the Lord. So he's still... A youth, and and it's not too much later, four years later, that he begins to cleanse the land of their false worship. So I just want to point out in verse 3, nowadays we want to make allowances and excuses for young people's bad behavior. You look at Josiah, and he's just one of several examples. You look at it and say, they do not have to turn from the Lord. They do not have to have bad behavior. They do not have to sow their wild oats, experience the world. They can choose to seek the Lord. 16 years old. So very, very similar to David. Jim. Jim. You're probably I did not figure that one out. Well, yeah. He was sixteen when he was born. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Early father. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you were in love with your basketball. <laughs> um yeah, so yeah, his father would have been very young when he was born. Um, now let's go. Let's go back to Second Kings. Second Kings, chapter twenty-two. Again, now I want to pick up at verse three here, and this is going to pick sort of where we were at in Second Chronicles, but we're back in Second Kings. So it says now in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money. Brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters, the builders, and the masons for the buying for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. So when does this happen? This happens in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. So that's going to be about 623 B.C. He's about 26 years old. Okay. That's when it happens. So it's it's important to keep these numbers in mind. 623 Okay, that's an important. That will become an important number. Twenty-six. That's how old Josiah is, eighteenth year of his reign. So he's only been reigning on his own since about the age twenty. Okay, that's about the time when they're going to turn him loose, let him go. Um, so it's, you know he's he's pretty. Uh, he's he's not a what you would call a mature king having reigned for a decade or more, but he's, he's in the job. You know, he's had his two years of on the job training. He, he knows pretty much what he's about as King. And so he's going to start repairing the temple. He, he wants to repair the temple, which makes sense since he, at 16, he sought uh, the Lord. And this is 10 years later. He wants to repair the temple. Um, this is, This is probably going to be the second significant act of his reign. Okay, the first act, that is the repairing of the temple. The first act was the purging of Judah of false worship, which was in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Um, And so that took place, the purging of Judah from false worship took place in 629. So that's the you know, it's about six years earlier, 629, when he was about 20, okay? So if you're keeping track of all these events here and all these dates, it's just good to, to keep it in our mind. The funds the funds for the t- repair of the temple came from the money that people brought to the temple, and I'm guessing this was only since he's been king. They've, they've only been collecting money. For the temple since he became king and probably probably since he actually started to take control of the kingdom as king so i'm guessing maybe six or seven years as as long as they have been collecting funds because remember before that manasseh had set up false worship in the temple you know and they weren't keeping the money to repair the temple then so people were bringing money to the temple so uh, this money is going to be used to repair the temple. And so in the process, verses 8 through 13, in the process of repairing the temple, they find the book of the law. The finding of the book of the law. Remember, for the previous 57 years of Manasseh and Uh, Ammon plus 18 years of the first part of Josiah's reign, you know, coming to the temple to worship or having the law was non-existent, non-existent, just was not a consideration at all. So, um. What this is? What uh, eighty close to eighty years, so almost a century, almost a century without true temple worship in Judah, and they find the law somewhere in Messiah's or. Um, um, Manasseh's reign, the law got shelved, he got stuck in a cubby hole somewhere, pushed in the back of the recesses of the temple, covered up with stuff, and it's just a, it was a lost memory. So they found it as they're repairing the temple. Ver- look at verses 8 and 9, and just, I'm not going to read them, but I'm just going to describe them. I want you to kind of think in the sequence of events here. Uh, the first thing that happens is Hilkiah the priest says to the scribe, I found the law, the book of the law. He doesn't say I found a book. He says I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. He gives it to Shaphan the scribe to read. Okay, so it doesn't, we don't know if he read the whole thing, it'd take a while, but he read it. So Shiphon then goes to the king, to Josiah, and says to him, I think this is, to me, this is interesting. Verse, verse 10, uh, verse, uh, actually verse 9 and 10. So Shaphan goes to the king and he says, oh, you know, we got the money, we got the money, and we've given it to the uh, craftsmen uh, to do the work. And oh, by the way, they found a book. Do you see that there in verse... 10 says Hilkiah the priest has given me a book he doesn't say he gave me the book of the law he just says a book now I wonder why does he gets the law why doesn't he tell the king number one first of all why doesn't he tell the king about this book first secondly why doesn't he call it the book of the law why does he call it a book And and not specific about anyway. Something to think about. Uh, And so we see that sequence, and then the scribe reads the book to the king, and uh, which is not unusual. Kings in that day, most of them were not literate, um, so it wasn't unusual that they had to be read to. Um, Now in Israel. Did the kings, were the kings supposed to be literate? Yeah. Now, how do we know the kings were supposed to be literate? They're supposed to make their own copy of the law. I mean, even if you started out illiterate, by the time you got that done, you would be literate. You know, they were supposed to make their own copy. Again, that's a difference between Israel and the rest of the nations. So, um, So we see here, as we come down to verse 10, that they find this, and it's read, and look at Josiah's reaction in verses 11 through 13 when he realizes the importance of this. It says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, these other people here, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people of all Judah concerning the words of this book, that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers had not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. We'll, we'll talk about them going to see the prophetess next week. But just let me close uh, with this. It's, um, it's not perfectly clear from the text whether... Uh, Josiah knew this was the book of the law, and therefore when it was read, it was, oh, these are the words of God. Or if it was a book, and it was read, and Josiah already knew some of what the law said, and so he recognized it, and he said, that is the law of you have a Bible. Um, I say that because given Josiah's character and how he sought the Lord from a young age, that tells us right away there was a faithful remnant in Judah even during Manasseh's wicked, wicked reign. There was a faithful remnant there even getting into the house of the king. So you you remember when uh, Ahaz was king over Israel, and he wanted to kill Elijah. He was looking all over the place for Elijah. Who was Ahaz's number two? What was his name? Everybody gets an F for this class. You don't remember his name. Obadiah. You po- oh. <laughs> Obadiah, number two guy. Obadiah is faithful to the Lord. Protected the other prophets of the Lord. So something's happening here, I think, something like that. So I think it's very possible Josiah, uh, I mean, because they had a rich history of oral memorization, oral tradition. Where they just repeat it and repeat it and they got it. Okay. Um, So it's very possible that he knew the law, and when we're talking about the law, of course, we're only talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. He knew, he knew enough of it to recognize where it was written. Um, and and if you read your law enough, you would reckon, you know, somebody could stand up and just start reading from somewhere in there and you would say, oh, I, I know where that's at. I know that's the Bible. So, I kind of think that's what happened there. And so it's because of this that he wants to seek the Lord. When it's, he wants to send these guys to seek the Lord, a word from the Lord, he's going after a prophet or a prophetess. We see he goes after a prophetess, wants to know. Confirm this. We found this. This is a big deal. We want to come to the Lord. Um, so that's what, that's what he's going to do. So we'll pick up here next week. I need to make a little mark in my notes. So verse 14 of uh, chapter 22 is where we'll, we'll pick up. All right, let me pray and we will be finished. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us again. Thank you for your word and even Lord as we reflect on Judah during this time where they had a very wicked king for 55 years. Um, Lord, I don't think anything that any of us have ever experienced would compare to living under Manasseh for our entire lives or most of our lives. Um, so we're thankful that we don't have to experience that, but we're also thankful that even in the midst of that, there were obviously people who were faithful to you. And, and as Josiah came along They were there to encourage him even, and we're thankful for uh, Josiah's commitment to seeking you and following you, and not just in word, but in deed. He took action on his faith in you. And so um, we praise you for that, and thank you for allowing us to have this in our Bible. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.